0: Taking you inside the world of music. This is Inside Music Cast
1: with Rick Such and Eddie Cabello. On this episode, Inside Music Cast welcomes Brian Bromberg.
2: Welcome to Inside Music Cast, the podcast that sheds new light on the world of music. That means that we peel back the obvious and let you see music from the inside
1: out. I'm Eddie Cabello, and I'm Rick Such. Hi everyone, and welcome to another edition of Inside Music Cast. As Eddie mentioned, Inside Music Cast will take you inside the mind of the musician. ...and allow you to get a special, up-close glimpse of the music-making process. So if you're a fan or even a musician, this is where you want to be. That's right. This is the podcast that takes you beyond the stage
2: and into the studio... ...and features the people that make music happen. So if you're ready, let's get started.
1: When Brian Bromberg got his real break as a jazz bassist at the age of 19... ...he had already been playing professionally for six years... You got it, that would make him 13 when he started playing gigs at jazz clubs and events in Tucson, Arizona. But it was Bill Evans' bassist who connected him with the jazz legend Stan Getz, who was shopping for a touring bassist at the time, and with one phone call from Stan, he had a gig. Today, as a seasoned bassist, Brian Bromberg has been described as one of the best 100 bassists of the 20th century. This is due to his remarkable proficiency as a technician, player, and composer. Brian is a true jazz bassist. He's also a contemporary smooth jazz artist that has turned the ear of music lovers and audiophiles that see his true passion and dedication to his craft. On his latest solo release, he invited heavy hitter friends such as Lee Rittenauer, Kirk Whalem, Jeff Lorber, Boney James, Rick Braun, George Duke, and Vinnie Cagliotta to contribute their talents to this truly hybrid jazz recording called Downright Upright. It's a remarkable project and we highly recommend this album. Inside Music Cast welcomes Brian Bromberg. Hey, Brian, thanks for joining us today.
0: Hey, thanks for having me.
2: Hey, good to have you with us. Hey listen I've uh, I've been on your website and uh, I read a story it's sort of I, I'm sort of laughing about it but uh, um it, it you, you explain how your junior high school orchestra teacher strategically persuaded you to switch from the cello like to the bass now we also understand that he ruined your career as a promising young cellist so <laughs> <laughs> walk us through that because that I, was sort of the beginning of the I wouldn't of, exactly the call
0: that a promising career as a young cellist <laughs> I I would, would, yeah. Well, I think his whole reasoning for doing that was because I suck so bad at cello. He's like, "Hey, man, hey, Brian, you see the big bass over there? Don't know what he's playing. Why don't you play that?" Because I know, I know, in his mind, he was going, "I'd much rather have one bad bass player than none at all," versus listening to me try to, you know, saw my cello in half. So that's that's how that happened, and uh, it it was a it was a trip. At first, it was like, "Do I you know, bass." I mean, come on, you know. And then because I I was already a drummer as well, Mm -hmm. and. you know, when... It, I kind of realized that, well, if you play bass, you can play jazz, and it's rhythm, it's blah, blah, blah. It's right. like,
2: boom, it just like happened really quick. Yeah. Is, uh, seriously, you, you were baptized into music at a very, very early age. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, your your parents were musical and so forth, but um, you know, at the beginning of your professional career, it's sort of amazing. It was it actually started at 13, right? Yeah,
0: as a drummer, I was working. It's, it's, <coughs> it's funny, while, while my junior high orchestra director was trying to get me to stop playing cello and play bass, I was working two, three nights a week as a drummer drummer every week so i I made more money in junior high school than i did (laughs) in high school it was funny because i was in this band we were working two three nights a week every week it was it was it was it was a a trip my sisters or my brother or my dad or my mom whatever used to have to drop me to the gigs and pick me up because i couldn't drive because i was 13 you know and uh, i remember being in the clubs playing the gigs and then they would have to I'd have to go outside on the breaks because I couldn't be in the bar because right. I wasn't young enough to be there but if I was playing in the band it was okay but once I stopped playing I then became a customer I had to leave so all my breaks I had to stand outside Was, was this all hard- in Tucson? Or was this yeah. in Tucson? Yeah, it was pretty funny. Hard- so
2: how does a 13 year old Kid, get a gig in Tucson bars. (laughs) That's what I want to know. Well, it's Tucson, Arizona. That should pretty much tell you right there. Yeah, I wouldn't exactly
0: call it the Metroplex of drummers. Um, Actually, there are some very good musicians there now, and there were then too, but – Sounds kind of funny, but believe it or not, even for a 12-, 13-year-old kid, I was actually a pretty good player. So Mm -hmm. because of my brother, who was a drummer there, and my father, who was a drummer there, because of our reputation in the city, we were very well-known, just the family and the players. People knew I could play. Yeah, chaps. And so I would get gigs just because people knew I could play. So I kind of got the gigs
2: from the inside. Mm -hmm. Well, you you played a lot as a teenager, obviously. Yeah, a lot. Were you a reader? You know, when when you were you know during this stage when you're transitioning, you're still learning, obviously, of, right. of your uh, of your craft. And uh, and did any of these gigs require you just to, to to sight read or whatever? How did you manage to get by? You were a young kid.
0: Um, you know, that's a that's a great question. As a drummer in those days, usually what I do is just be club dates and just gigs. You know, dances. You know, like yeah. you know playing a club and whatever. Um, I didn't have to read. As a drummer, I didn't have to read. Occasionally, if I did a big band thing, I would have to read, of course. Mm -hmm. Fortunately for me, you know, playing in the orchestra in junior high and high school, I was reading and learning how to read. So it helped the process but most of it was relying on my ears and my talent i guess in the sense of just knowing what to play and what not to play right. a lot of it had to do with the fact that i grew up with two really good drummers in, in my house with my brother and my father so i really learned from them so much and listening to so much music even though i was young i had heard so much music by that age, I kind of knew what to do and what
1: not to do. Real quick, I want to go back to Tucson. Yeah. You and I have something in common. Uh-uh. uh Yeah, I was born – What's in your de- name? I oh, was sorry. born de- – <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I just noticed this because I saw this on your site, but you were born in December 5th of uh, – you know, I'm not going to say the year to – Oh, it doesn't matter. Like 1960. I was, <laughs> born, I was born December 2nd, 1968 in Tucson. Wow, cool. So if I'm from – Tucson. well, I, my dad was in the Army, so that's why I was there. So How long were you there for? Oh, just a year, year and a half, and then from I moved. The to The interview is now about you. So, uh, I what, know. Hospital, <laughs> were you, what hospital are you born? Do you have any other questions, I, I did study percussion for a long time. There you go. <laughs> and seventy nine, after you turned nineteen, um, Mark Johnson, the basis for the great jazz pianist uh, Bill Evans, heard Damn. you play and, and then recommended you to someone. And it, talk to us about that experience. Yeah. yeah,
0: that was that was pretty. That was an amazing time. I, I have to tell you that from junior high, I would say when I was fourteen when i started playing the bass and i i really it like i think 14 15 years old is when it really clicked but between 14 and 15 when it clicked it was like oh man this is my axe this is my voice i had no life all i did was practice and play and literally between 15 and 18, I played, you know, four, five, six, eight, ten hours a day. I mean, I'd, mm. I'd, I'd ditch school. I'd practice. Um, <laughs> seriously, I'd ditch, In yeah, fact, right. the orchestra director in the high school, I mean, she risked her job for me. She believed in me so much. She let me ditch school, and, and I would wow. practice in the practice rooms, Holy And God. you know, and she supported me. I took the <clears> GEDs. <throat> I, I got you know tested out of high school early. Sure. I had already gone through the music department at the University of Arizona in high school as a player, Um, And I just practiced all day long, played gigs at night. I mean, I was immersed in it. So between 15 and 18... I didn't realize it, but I got real good yeah. I, I didn't know I sure. had no no one to really to compare myself mm-hmm. to and There was an organization in Tucson that used to bring in great jazz artists to come in for a week to do workshops and clinics and teaching and lectures and performances and they'd spent a whole week there, which was great and Dexter Gordon came for a week with Rufus Reed wow. and then um the next year was uh Buster Williams and Ron Carter, which was really cool <laughs> and then the the last year was um the great Bill Evans, the pianist, with Jeez. Mark Johnson playing bass, and right. you know, of course, I went to every event they did. We all hung out and became friends. And and uh, seven months later, after hanging with Mark, then yeah. he recommended me to Stan Getz. Stan was touring in Europe. Mark was touring in Europe with Bill Evans, and right. Stan went to Mark and just said, "Hey man, do you know any you know any bass players? I'm looking for a bass player." And he recommended me, which completely blew my mind. So Mark came back from <laughs> Europe, called me from New York, and just said, "Hey man, I recommended you to Stan Getz. He may be calling you." I'm like. Oh. Yeah, right. Sure. sure. (laughs) The next day, I'm rehearsing with this band, this local band that I'm playing in in Tucson. And my mom comes in and she goes, Brian, Stan Getz is on the phone. (laughs) The sax player basically almost passed out because Stan Getz was calling my house in Tucson, right? But he was true to his word. He recommended me to Stan. And I guess he said enough things about me where Stan took me seriously. And Stan called me and... I flew to New York and auditioned and got to gig, amazing, and that was it. It was amazing. It was truly amazing. amazing.
1: Now, to land this gig with, with Stan Getz or to make that switch, did you have to switch from the upright bass to electric?
0: Well, it was really interesting the way it happened because, you know, at, at that point, I was really like a completely acoustic jazz purist. Right. I mean, I was very into classical music and very into straight-ahead jazz. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I never had anything that you could plug into a wall right. except for my stereo. I mean, I was very into the organic acoustic instrument and mm-hmm. the acoustic bass. When Stan got me on the phone, he asked me if I played electric bass. I said, of course I do. (laughs) So the next day, I went to the music store and bought a bass, Uh because I didn't really play electric bass. And uh, what am I going to do? Say no and lose the gig? Exactly. So I just instantly became an electric bass player
2: Holy cow. and
0: uh and it was kind of funny how that happened but uh it was it was like a fellini movie i mean i went to new york and i auditioned for stan in the piano player His great piano player for new york andy laverne and we're still you know all these years later we're talking 1979 right. we're still friends and we just did a tour together back east a few months ago um great piano player um you know we were i auditioned for for Getz's gig in his bedroom So, like, you know, I'm in New York for a day or two, and here I am, I'm in this stranger's bedroom, because his piano was in his bedroom with Stan Getz, and I'm just saying to myself, what the heck are you doing here? This is, it was the most outest thing I had ever experienced in my life. And, uh... You know, we played Autumn Leaves and it oh, was time for my bass geez. solo and I try to do my bass solo and, you know, this guy Andy's like really into these hip chord changes and stuff like that. i would never played with anybody this good in my life right. and he's playing all these chord changes that I'd never even heard before and I'm trying to do a bass solo and I'm saying to myself, okay, I learned this song from the real book or whatever. I mean, I just learned this tune as basic Tucson, Arizona, you could learn the gringo version <laughs> of Autumn Leaves, right? And I'm trying to play a bass solo. And and I know these changes, and every note that I play sounds wrong because the piano player is playing all this crazy stuff. I mean, it was like completely. You know, he was like, "All right, kid, let's see what you got." Right. right? So, so between him, you know, playing all these chord changes, and I'm sitting there freaking out because I'm playing with Stan Getz in some stranger's bedroom. I mean, it was truly the weirdest, (laughs) you know, the weirdest minute of my life. I got to tell you.
2: In the '70s, Stan Getz was um, during that time of his life. I think he was experimenting with fusion, some other things that were sort of like, um, you know. You know, some wild reverbs on his saxophones. And, I got to
0: tell you, he was... You know, you know, one thing that I really give him credit for, which which which, which <coughs> is amazing, and if you think about, you know, we, we got to remember something about Stan. The band Return to Forever, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. would never have been Return to Forever if it wasn't for Stan Getz, because right. the core of that band was Stan's rhythm section hmm. before that. It was Chick Corea, Stanley Clark, and Ayerto. Right. That's where Return to Forever started happening. Got it. So they were Stan Getz's sidemen. Holy cow. So... You know he was, you know had amazing musicians with him for a lot of his career, and right. and where I got to give it up is that he was fifty three years old when I played in the band, okay. and at least half of the set that we did was original music from the musicians in the band, and the oldest guy in the band at that time was twenty five okay. or, th- or thirty two, or I don't know what what he was a kid, wow. right? But here Stan gets this legend; he played everybody's music and we did i played electric bass we did all this different stuff so i i found it you know pretty amazing that he was that open to doing new things and playing the guy's music in the band and really stretching it some of the stuff with electric some of it was fusiony rock and yeah, right. funky stuff and then he we well, do like a you know traditional jazz tune but for somebody like him i thought that was amazing to do that and yeah. he was totally into that which i thought was
2: great i mean that's the level of experimentation at at in those days, like, that must have blown your mind. Holy cow, look what these guys are doing, oh, you know, what every, they're trying. Every you know?
0: note of every, every minute was blowing my mind because, yeah. remember, I'm just this kid from Tucson. Now, all of a sudden, I'm playing with the greatest players in the world every night, right. plus traveling around the world and seeing the world. Mm-hmm. So the whole thing was a huge eye-opening experience so, for me.
2: So you as a kid that, that's coming in and you've migrated from – the way, what you were used to with the acoustic classic and right. you know, the bass and whatever and you're thrown into this whole new pool right. of of uh, of new music and, great. and new approaches. I mean, um, I know that towards the end of 79, 80, you know, Stan sort of he sort of returned again to the classical type of music.
0: Well, that's what paid his bills quite well. And also, it's what he was amazing at. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's funny because Chuck Loeb, the guitar player, Mm -hmm. uh, who's a well-known smooth jazz guitar player now, but Chuck was the guitar player in Stan Getz's band when I was with Stan. Mm -hmm. So I've known Chuck since then as well. And I was talking to him a while back. He goes, hey, Brian, you got to check out on YouTube. There's all these old videos of us (laughs) playing with Stan. So there's like 10 videos on YouTube of... I was 19, Chuck was 22 or something, and Mitch Foreman. I mean, you know, and, and we're like, we're just kids. And it was amazing to go on there and look at these videos and to see and listen to us then versus now. I mean, I look like a skinny Elvis. It's, it's hysterical. <laughs> I got sideburns down to here. I, it's just nuts. But but it was it's amazing to think that, oh, my God, we were so young. We had no clue. But in our not having a clue – we obviously had something or we wouldn't have been there. And it sounds pretty darn good, you know. <laughs> but what I got from it was Stan was amazing. Yeah. And every and, – and, and this is something that I will take to my grave. Right. Every night he played, no matter where we were in the world, yeah. he was 99.9% flawless every single time he put that horn in his mouth. Mm. He was remarkable. Every note that he played was every note he wanted to play. His command of the music and the knowledge and in his instrument was absolutely one. And when you play with somebody who's that good every night, it can't help you can't help but but growing mm-hmm. because you're truly playing with a master. Well, he how how, de-
2: how demanding was he? I mean, granted, you get a perfectionist, and his as a technician, he's uh, at he's practically perfect. He knows, you know. He gives you guys room to experiment and so forth. But uh, how demanding could I, that be? I actually
0: uh... got to tell you, musically, he was pretty cool. He really? he let us, uh, it, you know. In in hindsight, looking back on it now, he really let us young guys be who we were, and I think that shows you who the musician that he was, which all helped us to be who we are, because mm-hmm. a lot of us have had successful careers since then. I mean, we're talking still the likes of Chick Corea, right. Stanley Clark, people like Tony Williams, you know, people like that, Ayerto that came through Stan's band, and I think that one of his strengths was he would recognize somebody who really had something, and then he didn't hide it he actually supported the growth and the gotcha. development. I've played with lots of band mm-hmm. leaders and still do that, you know, God forbid you get too much applause in your solos and you're never going to solo again, <laughs> yeah. you know, that kind of stuff,
1: right. where Stan would, would actually encourage the musicians to push the envelope, so to speak. Yeah. Going back to 1979 in the, in the Monterey mm-hmm. Jazz Festival, uh, Stan played with uh, trumpeter Woody Shaw at that festival. Did you happen yeah. to play at that at that gig?
0: No, I joined in December of 79, so that was right before I joined. I
1: see. How long were you with Stan? About a year. About a year. Year. yeah because okay.
0: i ended up quitting the band because of other reasons because there was there was two sides to stan and, and and um actually there's more than two sides well it's uh you know there's many different things you know whatever stan wants stan gets right. um stan gets oh yeah he's a nice <laughs> bunch of guys i mean unfortunately stan had a drug and alcohol problem mm. and when he wasn't uh when his consciousness wasn't altered he was actually a really beautiful cat okay. but he spent so much time gone that that whole other side came out and i got to a point where i just couldn't be around that i'd never been around that in my life right. and it just was i could, just couldn't hang with that aspect of it which was a shame and we ended up playing together again many years later uh, not too long before he passed away right. and he, it was a totally different experience because he was nice he was straight he got it and he understood the mistakes he made and how he treated people along the way mm-hmm. but when somebody is when, when somebody's consciousness is altered i mean you can blame them but at the same time you can't blame them because they don't even know what they're doing you know right, what i mean right, yeah so uh, deep down inside he was actually a really good guy but unfortunately most of us saw the other side because he was uh, not you know not not sober most yeah. of the time
1: have you always been proficient on both electric and upright bass equally or, or or you know during your career yeah
0: I would say for the most part yes just because it was it was had to be yeah. to earn a living but mm-hmm. I would say that most what most people know me for or want me to do is the acoustic bass mm-hmm. just because that's kind of that is kind of my main axe you right. know right. but I I play many different basses and I like to play the piccolo bass and different things where it sounds like guitar and all this you know I I do a lot of different things just because I love to be challenged mm-hmm. I mean if I have to do the same thing over and over again I don't care what it is. I go crazy, you know. And if I just play the same bass every time the same way, <laughs> I, it just gets boring to me. I like mm. to be the I like to be the weakest link of the chain, so to speak. Yeah. So when I do these different roles or play these different instruments or put myself in a situation like that, it really forces me
2: to grow right. and to learn my craft and my skill. If that yeah. makes sense. Out of the many bases that you do have, I, and uh, I took a look on the website, and you've got some incredible bases. I noticed that of out of uh, twenty-five or thirty bases that you have. Two, only two or five string. Um, uh, when when actually
0: I actually have more than two five strings, but I have two main five string
2: strings. When would you use a five string? Some guys use them exclusively now, as opposed to your classic four right. string. On a, a regarding of obviously electric bass. What what? How do you manage well, the usage of?
0: It's funny because I'm a diehard four string guy, just because I started on acoustic bass, which is four string, and mm-hmm. and when I. Learned my craft and skill, there really wasn't the five string bass yet. Mm-hmm. If I was a bass player starting today, never playing a bass before, um, I would start on a five or six string just because of the range of the instrument and what you can do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I do play both. I'm certainly more comfortable on the four string than the five string, right. but I am I try to force myself to play five string just because I love what it does to the... to the. I produce a lot of records. Right. I love what the five string does in production for the track. I love the bottom it gets. I love it playing live. I just don't feel like I own it yet. I'm still renting, but I'm getting comfortable, <laughs> you know? Like, I tour a lot with Lee Rittenauer, these all-star bands sure. that we do, and we got a bunch of gigs, geek- Coming up, starting in a few days, and um, last time we did the hit, I forced myself. I, I I took the five string out. I didn't even take the four string. I forced myself to play only the five string. Mm-hmm. And part of me is like, "What are you kidding? You're going to get on stage with Lee and Dave Grusen and Alex Acuna and you know all these well-known sure. people, and and you're going to you know put yourself at odds. You know, you're going to force yourself to play an instrument you're not comfortable on. Right, but right. I figured if I don't do that, I will never. Get to that next level. You, yeah. you know. It's just you just gotta
2: get used to it, that's all. Right. Well you've obviously the arsenal of bases that you that you own, one is in there, but it sort of like speaks to your embracing of technology. I mean you have a MIDI base that's a trigger or whatever. Right. <laughs> Is that something that you used to play, or do you use it in, in tracking, and sessions, or have fun with? How, well, I mean, for it's years, sort of cool I used to
0: always love messing with stuff, and I was kind of like, you know, had a little mantra for myself that there are no rules. It just doesn't matter. I mm-hmm. mean, if you can think of something or if the technology is there to do something, why not? I mean, that's where a lot of my the pickups that I use come from. That's where the strings that I use come from. I just did a record of uh, um, half Antonio Carlos Jobim music and half my music for mm-hmm. Japan. Mm-hmm. It'll come out here next year with orchestra and all the nylon mm-hmm. string classical guitar parts. I'm playing on the nylon string acoustic (laughs) piccolo bass. The strings were built a week before the session. (laughs) They never even existed before. So I I like doing new things, and I like those challenges. Uh, The MIDI bass is something that... You know, in a way, it's remarkable that you can, you know, play a Rhodes patch or a piano patch or a horn section of stuff on the bass. I mean, it adds a whole new dimension to what you can do. The downside is the technology isn't quite there where it really has great, you know, live user application. It mm-hmm. does, but there's still some glitches in it. Mm-hmm. But. On the flip side, it's an amazing tool to have. And uh, in the studio, you know, I'm not a keyboard player, so I'm actually going to start using it more in the studio because I can play it and yeah. I can program it. Just As a stuff melodic like instrument. Sure, exactly. So, I mean, I'll, I'll use it within my abilities. And, uh-huh. and when I need, you know, to use the
2: real guys, then I'll call the real guys, you know. Speaking of composition, how do you write when you, when you compose? What, how do you put things down capture, um, capture them?
0: I do it really the old-fashioned way in Mm -hmm. the sense that a lot of the music I write, I either write in my head without an instrument at all or I will write it organically on usually the piccolo bass just because it's melodic and I can play chords and melodies. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't sequence tracks. I don't program. I don't do it like that. The music kind of comes out organically. And I kind of feel like I don't write it. It's like the song comes through me and my fingers just have to figure out where to go because the song's going to be what it is. I kind of look at it. The song's going to be what it is with or without me. Right. And it's just my job to go, okay, this is where you need to be. It's kind of zen in a sense. But I have to tell you, for me, you know, if I'm emotionally touched by something or whatever, inspired, I watched a movie last week and it just blew my mind and I just like wrote a song, Mm -hmm. you know, and the notes just like came out and it's like... You know, literally the song wrote itself and they just did it through my body. Mm -hmm. I know that sounds kind of funny. Mm -hmm. But because of that, I don't sit down and like a lot of people will write a groove and then they'll do a thing and they'll build it like that. I really try to do it from my heart and do it musically. And I try to write all the parts at the same time. Like I will write the melody and the chord changes at the same time, how I play it, so it comes out as like a, like a piece of work, if yeah, that makes phrasing. sense. Yeah, phrasing. Right. So most of it I do on the instrument or in my head. Mm-hmm. I don't play any piano, and uh, I haven't sequenced anything yet. So wow. um, I'm not a prolific writer. I don't write a lot, but I feel that when I do write, a lot of my music – does have something to say so i'm really proud of a lot of my compositions Mm -hmm. but i don't just sit down and write them all the time i've written three tunes in the past month so to me that's like wow that's really (laughs) cool because i go six (laughs) months and i won't write anything Uh and then i'll go i'll write three songs in a month and interestingly enough the three songs are all going to end up on records because they're they're really beautiful and they work you know Mm -hmm. so I, i may be far in between but when something comes out, it Absolutely. usually says something. Sure, you
1: know? sure. And going back to your arsenal of bases, one one base that we didn't talk about was your three hundred year old upright. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can you give us a little, briefly? I guess give us a little history on on this on this base. Well, that's another one
0: that uh, one of those situations where Tucson, Arizona has been very good to me. I got it at a music store in Tucson, Arizona. A store called Beaver's Band Box, which would <laughs> mm. give you an idea of what they do. Okay. And um, it was a store that had been in Tucson for a million years. Uh-huh. And a friend of mine went to the music store to get a drum heads or something. He was a drummer. And he goes, hey, man, there's this whole bass hanging up on a wall in the store. you got to go check it out. So, of course, I'm going to go check it out. I was 16. And uh, sure enough, I walk in the door, and they had this bass literally wedged up above the cash register about eight feet in the air. <laughs> wedged on the wall in three nails. They literally hammered the base up there. So these people had no clue what they had, and Uh I saw the base up there. I wasn't driving yet, so my dad drove me there, and um, I saw the base. As soon as I opened the door, and my heart just skipped a beat. It was like, oh, my God. Mm -hmm. A... I just instantly felt that this is my bass. Uh-huh. B, I knew what it was. I could tell that it was a beautiful old Italian bass, and these people had no clue what its value was or what this instrument was. You know, I ended up, you know, negotiating. I, I got the bass, and, um, you know, my dad thought I was crazy. He's like, you sure you want this old beat-up thing? I said, look, trust me. Trust me. <laughs> You'll see. <laughs> so um, we ended up – we got the bass, $857.77, including tax. Wow. I still have the receipt. I've got it in plastic. Um, we we had it appraised. We had actually we we got somebody from LA to come out and he appraised it and set it up. And the guy and I sucked. I was sixteen. I couldn't play at all. I mean, I was awful classical player. But I was bowing the bass and he set the bass. You know, once he set it up, and the guy who set it up, this luthier from California, yeah. started crying. In, in my family's house, because he heard the tone of the bass, not my playing. And he was like, oh my God, this isn't... you know Old Italian instruments have a very specific sound, like a Stradivarius. I mean, no, they really right. do have a sound. Mm-hmm. This bass has the sound. Wow. He's bawling his eyes out. I get the appraisal, and... You know, a month later, I just happened to run into the guy that sold me the bass on a gig, and on that gig, I was actually playing drums. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's like, "Hey, Brian, hey, <laughs> how's that old bass we sold you?" Not, not wink, wink. You know, because they probably paid fifty bucks for it, right, so they sure. made a killing. <laughs> yeah. I said, "Hey," I said, "Well, it's really great." I said, "You know, I had it appraised." He's like, "Really?" I said. It was, what's it worth? Uh-huh. And I said, I don't think you want to know. Oh, my God. So I just said, Are you sure you want to know? So I said, you better sit down. Sit down and I, I told him, and I swear to God, man, the guy turned white and almost passed out. Oh, my God. When I told him what it was worth, I just said, you know, you might want to know a little bit more about your instruments before you just, you know. And how dare you hammer the sucker up there with nails. I mean,
2: talk about disrespect. Well, obviously, your insurance coverage increased a little bit for your dad. Well, you know, the, you
0: know, the, 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 the hippest thing about it for me was it was like God's way of saying, Brian, this is your best. I mean, I've had that bass since I was 16. You know, I'm 46. I mean, I've had that bass for 30 years and and it's been, you know, whatever I've become or whatever I will become, this bass is helping me get there. And what's beautiful about it is that every time I play that bass, I say to myself, this bass will always be able to play better than I'll ever be able to play Mm. it. And it keeps you growing and, and that's the, it's that's just good. it's unbelievable it's like this yeah. instrument has really taught me how to be whatever I am and and for the rest of my life it will keep teaching me how to be it and then that's hopefully great. the next person will be able to play it that's good that's, that's cool yeah.
2: that's neat you've worked in your career with tons of great artists I mean I, um, you just mentioned a few you're about ready to do some, some work with uh, on the road with Lee Rittenauer. Mm-hmm. you work with Sadawan Atanabe and you know Arturo Sandoval Jeff Lorber and Toots and Hampton and Larry Carlton the Breckers and the list goes on and on. At, at what point in your career did you actually witness that the demand of your talents as a bassist? When when did you notice I'm in demand? There's there's a market for me.
0: I'm still trying to figure that out. If there is, I'm yeah, it, it happened
2: at some stage. But I'm just I'm sort of like wondering, you know, when? No,
0: you know, it's that's an interesting question. I think. In the beginning stages, it was – this may sound kind of funny, but in the -hmm. the beginning stages, it was like, well, Brian's the new young hot guy. He's really good and he's young, so he'll be cheap for the band leaders that don't want to pay a lot of money. (laughs) So, you know, I'm sure that that was one thing, but it it just – so much of how you earned a living back in those days was traveling because you could travel and you could tour. It's way different now than it was back in those days. In those oh, yeah. days, there was a million bands on the road. Right. And bands would go out and they'd do a week here, a week here, two weeks here, whatever. You know, like, there was all these hits. It was great. And the airlines were different. And you could take bases in the cabin of a plane and buy a half fare ticket and it wasn't <laughs> that big a deal. And right. you go on the I mean there's like, there, it was much easier to tour. Right. So I got a chance to tour and play with all these great people. But to be honest with you, I'd say most really in the past 10 years, maybe 10, even less than that, it's like, has it really, like my career has really gone up some notches. I mean, fortunately, I had some very successful records. I mean, I sold some records, and for a bass player, that's a hard thing to do. So that was truly uh, amazing. Um, I had many hits on on radio and smooth jazz radio. I've had number ones, and I was like one of the, I might have been the first bass player in smooth jazz to do that, actually. Um so that was kind of cool and and I think between that and being in LA and doing sessions and people – maybe people are finally starting to realize, you know, because I think for for a long time, because I do the piccolo bass and I play the, the electric bass and this and this and I don't know if, they don't know if I'm a guitar player, they don't know if I'm a bass player, they don't know what I am. <laughs> I think it took a long time for people to realize that, you know, you can still call Brian to come in and do a session because, right. you know, when you're – sometimes when you're blessed with the curse of being uh, – having technique, right. people – put you in a category of like, well, he's a virtuoso, so he's not going to want to play bass parts, or he, right. you know, he's not going to this or that or whatever. And people make assumptions of you, and it's like, wait a second, dude, I play bass. My life is groove, you know? Sure. Exactly. My life is playing yeah. time, right. and playing in tune, and swinging, you know? And I think once people started realizing, wow, they could actually call me to play on a session and play on a record, and I actually do what you're supposed to do, and hopefully do it with some style and grace, all of a sudden the word starts spreading. And I think... Once people got past this – I don't want this to sound pompous because I'm not that way at all. Mm-hmm. But once people got, or start to get past the, the virtuosity right. and the flash sure. and actually realize that I can actually read and do a job and I'm a nice cat, yeah. it's like, whoa, well, let's get Brian. Exactly. And boom. I think that – in the past five to ten years, that's what's one of the things that's really started to happen where I'm doing a lot more records and a lot more movies and more sessions sure, like that sure. because people realize that I'm not just some guy that wants to go out there and play fast and you know try to get applause. That's, right. not, my, that's not why I do this anyway. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's face it. You can't put in the time it takes to get to a level of playing that I strive to be at. Mm-hmm. You can't do that if you're not serious about it. Yeah, right. You're not about it for the applause. You're not about it for the money. You're not about it for the women. You're not about it <laughs> for whatever. You're about it because you love the instrument and you love the music and you work so hard to get right. there so I think once people get past all of that other stuff they realize yeah but you know on a session he's yeah. great Yeah, that's to me, that's like thrilling because Absolutely. it's like, A, I can, you know, support myself, you know, but B, I love making music with other people. And it's mm-hmm. nice that they actually want to make music with you and that I know that my job is to give them what they want. Yeah. That's, I mean, that is truly also the role of a bass player. We are a supportive instrument, you know. Absolutely. We are the mm-hmm. basement. We are mm-hmm. the foundation. Yeah, so rhythm. people hire us to not go crazy. Mm-hmm. I get to go crazy with my own band or on my own records, which is cool. Mm-hmm. But the way when I do sessions, I play bass parts. Yeah. Right. and that's it took a while for me to to break into that because people thought that I was the other, but no
2: it 's the whole package right, sure. you know. I want to talk about a little bit about your recordings um, your first three albums, a new day uh, in eighty six basses loaded in eighty eight and the magic uh, magic rain in eighty nine right. captured they captured the the audience or the ear of of the the smooth jazz genre and, and so forth jazz stations but your it was your fourth album that uh, was basically speaking that went on to actually hit billboard charts.
0: Yeah, that was the first record that actually, like, you know, sold right. and, like, you know, took me to that first next level, mm-hmm. you know.
2: What was the difference? I mean, what was the, the driving force on that album that, that went, I know that it was a remastering of some previous work that you right. had done in the past. What what uh, what were the, the factors? You know,
0: that? that's an interesting question, and I, I would have to say I, I really don't know the yeah. answer except for the fact that I did a solo bass piece on there that became kind of a cult little Kind of solo bass thing amongst bass players, but um, I think it 's like anything if you if you work really hard at what you do and do the best you can at what you do, people will listen and over a period of time, as you do more records and more reviews and people start talking, people just know more about you you know and I think maybe just my visibility started increasing a little right. bit, but I think some of it too had to do with the fact that. I did a bass solo thing on there. This that tune actually called "Basically Speaking," mm-hmm. which kind of became a cult amongst bass players. On the flip side, I wrote a ballad on that song, which went to the top of the charts on the contemporary jazz charts on radio. Mm-hmm. So there was two totally different followings happening Off at the that same one time. Album. Right. So you've got the radio on one side, which is people that have nothing to do with bass or with jazz; they just yeah. like the music. And then you've got the players that like the other thing, and they both kind of happen simultaneously. And that. I think, started taking
1: my my following to the next level. Interesting, yeah. Another of your albums, you know that feeling, came out in 98, and that was – you're most successful. Then came another album that did even better, which was Wood. Yeah. And uh, I think that was your first number one smooth jazz record of your career, wasn't it?
0: Well, the, the number one – actually, the number one f- uh, smooth jazz was You Know That Feeling. That was number one. Okay. Actually, mm-hmm. and I okay. worked on uh, a lot of those tracks with uh, Mr. Jeff Lohr with The Godfather sitting in the other room. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I don't know why he's picking his nose, but hey, he's he can do that. <laughs> um, yeah, he's smiling. It's good. Well, the Godfather. Um, but um, – I got to tell you, man, that was a fluke because who knew, right? I mean, you do the best you can, you 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 put you pour your heart out. You have no idea. I didn't know what smooth jazz radio was. I mean, I knew what it was, but I didn't know what it was. You do what you do, and the first single went to number one, which was just blew my mind. And then, fortunately, from that, I had three, I had three major hits from that record. We were we were top five. Ra- I spent. Six Six and a half months or seven and a half months in top five radio with three Mm. singles. I mean... That's awesome. I broke through in an incredibly huge way, which was really amazing to see. And what was cool about it for me was, you know, I wasn't famous, so... Broke through on its own validity, which, which was so rewarding. Yeah. Because who am I? You know, I'm no yeah. star. You know, I don't jump around on stage and entertain. I'm just a guy who plays my instrument. So yeah. it was it was kind of interesting that it did that. I was I was pretty blown away. Yeah.
2: And the uh, music spoke for itself, and people said, "I like that." I guess so. I'm going to buy it, and and, it, and it, all of a sudden, it, there you go. It
0: just you know, it was the right place at the right time. It just happened, and from that, I think my exposure really started growing. Right. And then when I did wood after that. Mm-hmm. which is a completely different direction, which is um, acoustic bass, sure. solo, duo, trio, jazz thing, um, I think that kind of really blew people away because it was very different from You Know That Feeling, but there was some real magic in the Wood record, and that actually did extremely well mm-hmm. um, for me. Uh, between the United States and Japan, it sold extremely well and still is is doing very well. It's a very, very unusual record to have that kind of success, and that's yeah. something that
2: I'm very, very proud of. On the same album that you're talking about, Wood, you played um, three very interesting tunes, and the ones that I'm going to pull out are, are just classics because you did a great job on, on Miles Davis's All Blues, um, Thelonious Monk's Straight No Chaser, um, and then Dolphin Dance by yeah. the Herbie Hancock tune. Sure. And it, it was obviously a departure from the, the smooth jazz work that you've done, but yet it made a real strong impact. And shortly after this, I mean, by the time you know it, people were saying uh, Brian Bromberg is – He's one of the best, you know, 100 bassists of the century. I mean, you're letting your music go by itself and all of a sudden these accolades are coming to you unforced. How are you feeling?
0: Well, I mean, look, look, like I was saying before, when you work really hard at something, obviously it's incredibly rewarding when people actually respect what you do and actually take notice of the fact that. That maybe you are actually saying something. You're mm-hmm. not just you know you're not just blowing smoke or, or it's not you know Hollywood that you actually have something to say as an artist. Um, anytime you make a record, it doesn't matter who you are, or what you do, you give it hundred percent and you throw it out there. And there's that old saying: it either sticks or it doesn't. People right. either get it or they don't. So when they do get it, it's extremely rewarding. You know. Um all you do is the best you can. Anytime I go in and make a record I give it absolutely the best I can mm-hmm. and you go in and try to do, you know, the the best job you possibly can as a player, as a writer, as a an arranger, as a producer, as whatever. And you right. just hope people get it and, they, and, and and sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. Right. When they don't it's really disappointing because you put your heart and soul in something and sure. you're like, I don't understand. When they do it's like really rewarding. Wow, they get it. I mean it's it's phenomenal, you know. Yeah. So you just give it your best shot and, um, you know, the wood record was came about, uh, it was originally done for Japan and it was a record that I never would have ever done and I think in one aspect that might be one reason why that it did really well is because it was so honest and just so no expectations yeah, that beautiful. maybe there was a certain artistry in it that, you know, you just go in and record because you don't. you're just doing it you know you're not thinking about anything else and maybe some magic happens because of that you know yeah It was a wonderful project. Plus, I I have to say that from uh, an actual production and recording standpoint, um, when you you do have a 300-year-old bass, sometimes it behaves and sometimes it doesn't because Mm -hmm. it's so old. Mm -hmm. On the wood record, my bass really behaved and it never sounded like that. And it sounds remarkable on that record. The recording, we won awards for the recording quality of the Mm -hmm. record. And audiophiles that have, you know, these these guys that sell these $200,000 stereos and $50,000 speakers and all this crazy stuff. I mean, it's really cool i get emails from these guys that say they use that record to demo their equipment as a benchmark yeah. as a benchmark uh-huh. and and that to me is like it just doesn't get better than that i mean you know you think about that that's really cool who recorded that album who, who tracked that album who, who's it's your engineer the same guy that i always use tom mccauley okay really? the same we've been making records for 20 years Okay. you know and it's uh, you know the weather has something to do with it the equipment you have has something to do with it whatever that mojo but when it when it all clicks yeah, you know right, it's right. just sonically that is one thing I'm very proud of is I've worked really hard in my production is to learn how to listen and learn how to record properly and um, you know the end result hopefully speaks for itself so to see a record like that win awards is pretty, pretty darn cool that's wonderful
1: that's awesome speaking of uh, records you've just released uh, or recently released your your new record uh, Downright Upright and yeah. that was released in Japan first but has it been released here yet? Yes it, it came out okay. it
0: came, I don't know when it came out here but yes it came out here recently and okay. uh, on radio the first single were number I just found out we're number four in the country awesome. on radio, on smooth jazz radio number three on media bass which is amazing because it's a true jazz record in fact mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Godfather Lorber played all over it um, it's a star started record it's something that I always wanted to do I've made a lot of straight ahead jazz records yeah, you know sure. oh. bebop you know walking bass mm-hmm. I always wanted to do an acoustic record that was all about funky groove, just fun yeah. tunes and fun music. Yeah. So this is a live jazz record we did it live in my studio in four single sessions which um, has Vinnie Caliuta, George Duke, Jeff Lorber, Boney James, Lee Rittenour, Rick Braun, Kirk Whalum. I mean, the (laughs) list goes on. It's totally star-studded. And what's really cool for me is that I gave these guys the chance to just come in and blow like players and not worry about airplay, not worry about this, not worry about that. And we had so much fun making this record. The band... It was just magical. I mean, it was really,
2: really great. The guys you mentioned, I mean, they're they're typically known as as your smooth jazz crowd or whatever. But the music that you chose and selected, it it really crosses into right. that genre of of jazz, and, and and you're pulling these guys that they they swim typically in their recording, you know, life or whatever, in the smooth jazz, like I said, and and they're like playing jazz on Canada Island by Herbie Hancock there on mercy 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 that's Joe's our Absolutely. Zalini. you gave him some material like you know cold duck soup uh you gave him uh, Eddie Harris's cut and they they went with it
0: well the thing is 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 what i guess maybe a, a part of me was like i get so much flack because i'm one of the few artists in this format that truly can walk both lines. I make straight up smooth jazz records Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I make straight up straight ahead records and thank God and I mean that literally I play well enough in both genres and formats to where there's a lot of honesty and substance in both and I feel I'm one of the few guys that actually walks both the lines because of that. Constantly people are like you know Talking about the comparisons between smooth jazz and straight ahead jazz and blah, 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 and Charlie Parker and blah, blah. It's like back and forth where it's like, you know, part of me is like, you know what? There's two kinds of music music that's played well and music that's not played well. So get over it. (laughs) You know? On the flip side, I go, there's a lot of my smooth jazz friends. Nobody grows up going, man, I want to be a smooth jazz player. (laughs) You don't do that. You want to be the best musician Uh, you can be, you know? So for me, it was kind of like, you know, I want to show people how great these musicians are because they're as good as anybody in the world on anything. And for me, because I am a jazz purist Mm -hmm. and I also know how to groove in the smooth jazz Mm -hmm, world, mm -hmm. I felt like it was a great balance to get these guys that people have no clue how good they really are and give them a vehicle with which to to, to play. So basically, I mean, you you, know. sh-
2: you shared your opportunity with them to sort of unite both circles in a way, to bring it all together. Right, you know? and what's
0: really interesting yeah. is, is that I've heard from media and from press and from reviews and radio stations is they look at this record as bridging the gap between both formats that's and that cool. of bringing both. And I have to tell you, I made it to the top of the charts in both formats mm-hmm. at the same time. And that's really, really cool. So it's very rewarding for me because... Straight ahead jazz stations are playing the record because we cut it as a jazz record. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing about this record that's not a live jazz record. I just made the music accessible and then with, you know, my editing and Pro Tools and blah, 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 I was able to make smooth jazz edits that would work for smooth jazz radio, mm-hmm. but the soul of this record is a jazz record and I think that's why it's it jumps out the way it does and I have to tell you, I'm... I mean, I've had several hits on smooth jazz radio. Yeah. You know, four as five as as a solo artist and several as a producer. It's really rewarding for me to see Cantaloupe Island, which is now number four. We have a shot to go to number three next week. It's amazing to see a song that is truly a jazz tune yeah, right. that I just cut up a little bit to make it work on smooth <laughs> jazz radio, translate on smooth jazz radio to truly be a hit. Yeah. That means that there are people in smooth jazz that get it, that some of the PDs get it, that the fans get it, and it's not all just you know cheesecake, right. that there's actually some substance there. So right. to see a song like this go that far, to me, is is, is really rewarding. That's cool. Well, now
2: that the album is out, What's next for you? What are you going to be looking at this next year? What, what are your sights? What kind of uh, things might we expect from well, it's, from Brian Bromberg? It's
0: crazy, actually. Um, I'm putting out another single of um, Downright, Upright. It's uh, the, another Herbie Hancock tune, Chameleon, which is just a great, mm-hmm. fun, Absolutely, groove tune, yeah. really hooky. I'm um, doing a lot of touring with my own thing, uh, some stuff with Jeff Lorber, some stuff with Lee Rittenhauer. But um, I've got several recording projects that I'm doing, one that that, uh, I I touched on briefly before, which is – it's called In the Spirit of Joe Beam. It's half Antonio Carlos Joe Beam songs and half my tunes that I recorded, but I used full orchestra arrangements. Oh, cool. Uh, It's amazing um really cool and for the american release of that i'm going to put um some other vocalists on it and do a few really neat things with it um i'm really proud of that record it's beautiful because it's it's a full orchestra and to hear that many human beings playing your music is that's, just like mind-boggling yeah. um so that's going to be coming down the pike soon cool. i'm doing a, a solo cd for japan which will probably come out in america at some point yeah. and the one that's got me really scared to death is uh, probably the biggest challenge that I've ever had to do. Again, you know, leave it to the Japanese to give an artist, uh, to put them in a place where they have to really jump outside themselves because uh-huh. a lot of these projects I never would have done. I did a Jaco Pastorio's tribute. That yeah, was a right. Japanese yeah, sure, project. Yeah. I never would have done that. It was right. their idea. Amazing. You know, and it's like, so here's another, wood was their idea. So, so here's another one, which is uh, a Jimi Hendrix record. But I'm going to play all the guitar parts on the piccolo bass. So now I've got to go to school on Jimi Hendrix, who I was a huge fan of. Trust me. I mean, I cried when Jimi died, even though I was a kid. I really, I mean, I was very, very into Hendrix. Amazing. So for me, that is a huge undertaking to jump into those shoes and Mm -hmm. to do something with that. So that's probably going to be my biggest challenge as a solo artist is to do the Hendrix record and to do it proud, which is completely different from everything else that I'm doing. And we are going to do another Downright Upright CD. Um, and I started writing for that already. Maybe call it upright, down, right? I don't know. Yeah. But that was so much fun and seems to be so well-received that it's crazy not to do another one yeah, because right. it's just a live jazz record. Sure. So I'm going to do another CD like that with some different special guests. And um, I have some touring coming up this year uh, with a band, with Randy Brecker and Dave Weckl. And mm-hmm. and I think we're gonna we're doing a bunch of hits. We're going to do a few weeks, and I think we're going to record live, either on some gigs or I'll just bring him into my studio while we're on the road just to record for a couple of days, and I'm sure we'll end up with a record out of that. I mean, when you play with a band that many nights with players that good, Absolutely. it seems crazy sure. not to just go record it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, well, exactly. So we're going to just, you know, and fortunately for me, I have, I'm blessed I have a studio. I can just have these guys come in and we can just hit it. And um, I'm really looking forward
2: to, to doing that because I'm sure it's going to be pretty special. Well, great. Well, Brian Bromberg, thank you so much for being with us on Inside Music Cast. You, you shared your insights and we can actually feel the, the the vibe that your music actually speaks for itself. If someone wants to learn more about you, I believe you have a website, Brian Bromberg. Is it .net? Yes, I Brian,
0: Brian Bromberg.net or they could also go to my MySpace page, which okay. is Brian Bromberg MySpace.com, but BrianBronberg.net is my website, and, um, and I'm going to be it, doing another big upgrade on it soon, but there's a lot of information and a lot of music on it available. It's a great site. It Thank really you. Is.
1: I, I was checking it out this past week, and it's really, Thanks. really extensive. So.
0: Yeah, and I, I, I'm I'm even going to make the, the music site even more extensive, and you, right now you can hear clips, and right. some of them are very long, sure. from – all my records. I'm gonna. I want to make it even more so, where people can really get into my world and see what's up. And you know, I got to tell you, I feel very fortunate that I get to earn a living making music. And whatever happens, happens. But it's all good just to be able to do this and survive. And mm-hmm. and um, you know, the internet is an amazing thing. I hear from people mm-hmm. every day from all over the globe that hear your stuff, and it's just so touching when these people yeah. get what you do. It's remarkable. And just like what we're doing now, I mean, people right. all over the world can just jump in and get get into your skin. Yep. I mean, if you think about it, it's truly incredible incredible medium and uh i i'm trying to expand that world so it's really neat and i really appreciate you guys having me on this
1: thanks for taking the time and and it's great to have you here in the studio absolutely uh, hopefully we can you know catch up with you down the road and see what's going on and anytime my pleasure all right thanks for joining us thanks thanks a lot special thanks to brian bromberg for joining us on this episode of inside music cast Our goal is to bring you a new podcast once every other week. So be sure to check your podcast downloads for the next episode of Inside Music Cast. If you have a question or a suggestion for the show, please drop us an email at input at insidemusiccast.com. That's input at insidemusiccast.com with one C. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Stay subscribed to Inside Music Cast, and we'll see you next time. Thanks
0: for downloading
2: Inside Music Cast, the podcast devoted to the musicians, fans, and the people who make the music business happen. Your subscription is appreciated, so be sure to check your
0: podcatcher for our next episode. You can also visit InsideMusicCast.com for additional content. If you'd like to contact us via email, the address is input at InsideMusicCast.com.